Grab a Bible, you're going to want one. We are in Romans 11 this morning. Bud has Bibles if you need one. Romans chapter 11, buckle up. We're going to get into it. But before we do, I want to remind you that it's St. Patrick's Day this week, so you can send the cards and the letters and the gifts. I'm just kidding. But St. Patrick's Day does remind us that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are Irish and those who wish they were Irish like us. St. Patrick's Day is not a big thing in Wichita that I've ever noticed. I, there's, there's times that I wish it was more like Chicago. Let's just dye the Arkansas River green. Arkansas, I know. If you dye it green, I'll call it the Arkansas. But there's two kinds of people in this world. How many jabs and, and jokes and jibes have you heard in your life that start with that line? Two kinds of people in this world. Those who make your life easier and those who make your life harder. Two kinds of people in this world. Those who are willing to do the work and those who are willing to let them. Two kinds of people in this world. My, my first boss told me this. Two kinds of people in this world, Patrick. Those who don't take care of their tools and the smart ones. Two kinds of people in this world. As we turn to Romans 11 this morning, the two kinds of people Paul is thinking about are Jew and Gentile, God's chosen people, and the rest of us. And there are those two categories. Since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there have been those two categories. God made those two categories. The problem is, since the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we've misunderstood those categories. We've misunderstood God's heart towards Jew and Gentile. We've misconstrued his plan for Israel and for the church, and it's all been to everyone's tremendous detriment. Paul's going to try to set us straight this morning. He's going to take a swing at clarifying God's intentions for these two categories, and he's going to call out the danger involved when we put people into our own categories or assign our own meaning to his categories. Help us out, Paul. Romans 11, verse 1. Paul begins by asking a question that's plagued the church for the last 2,000 years. I say then, has God cast away his people? Is God done with Israel? Paul's acknowledging what we all know and what his readers in Rome would certainly have known. Israel today, in Paul's day, in our day, Israel is suffering the consequences of rejecting her Messiah. Rejecting him, not recognizing him, handing him over to be tortured and executed. And we've talked about that, how Israel has been blinded in part. We've talked about this because Paul has talked about this for the last two chapters. And the question that he knows, having talked about this already, the question he knows his readers will have, the question that at least some of them will ask, how long, Paul? How long does this go? How far? Has, has, has God cast away Israel completely? Is he done with them entirely? Has God washed his hands of the Jewish people forever? Paul's answer, verse 1, is certainly not. That's not the case at all. That's not the case even a little bit. I mean, look at me, Paul says, for I'm also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God, uh, Paul says, God's not done with Israel. Exhibit A right here. I'm as Jewish as they come, Paul says. And I haven't been cast away. 
I was called by God, I'm serving God, I'm being used of God, and I'm not the only one. God, verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, the people for whom God had plans before he laid the foundation of the world. He hasn't cast them away completely, and he hasn't cast them away forever. And Paul says, I I, I get that it might seem that way, because there aren't a lot of us being saved right now, but not none. He goes on to say, it's sort of like the times, excuse me, the times, again, of Elijah, when almost all of Israel had left worship of the true and living God for worship of idols. And I, Elijah was distraught, we read in 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 19. You remember that, Paul says. Don't, don't, you, 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 you've read that. What the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What's God's response, verse 4? God says to Elijah, there's still a remnant. You're not the only one. Not all have turned away. There are still 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Because God always preserves a remnant, right? Right? It was true in Noah's day. It was true in Abraham's day. It was true in Elijah's day. And, Paul says to the church in Rome, true in our day. Even though, verse 5, even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Who is this remnant? Who has God chosen out of Israel? Paul just told us, those Jews who are being saved by grace through their faith in Jesus. Not a lot but not none. And we say, yeah, Paul, tell us something new, will you? Because that's how anyone is saved. Jew, Gentile, before the cross, after the cross, believe in the heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. Old news for us. Sadly, tragically, we're almost bored with it, right? Because it's good news, but it's old news. Consider what an absolute change of thinking, what a complete transformation of mindset, what, a, what, a, what, a, what an utter paradigm shift that would have been for Israel. Because Israel had convinced herself they had to work their way to God. Feasts and sacrifices and offerings and observances, the, the way to God to them was through law-keeping. And the problem was Israel's leaders thought they were really good at it. They really believed that they could achieve righteousness, that they could earn right standing before God on the basis of their works. They were so convinced of it that when Jesus rolled up and tried to tell them differently, they said, get lost. Jesus said, I want to talk to you about grace. No, buzz off. Jesus came and explained, no, you misunderstood the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise was to demonstrate that you can't keep the law. The point of the law was to show no one can keep the law. And Jesus said, I've come to tell you, you don't need to. Give up the law and choose grace. Give up your work and choose me. Because it can only be one or the other. Verse 6, Paul says, if it's by grace, it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Two kinds of people in the world, Paul says. Those who are going to stand before God on the basis of their work and those who stand before God on the basis of Christ's finished work. you got to choose. can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. And you better choose wisely because one way leads to eternal life and the other leads to death. 
Israel chose death. We'll stand on our work. We'll take our chances. We'll trust in our righteousness. We'll let the law judge us. (laughs) Yeah, wrong answer, Paul says. And as a result, verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Israel didn't obtain the favor before the Lord. They were certain was theirs. Instead, the elect have obtained it. The Gentiles were coming to faith, and a few Jews who are being saved, the rest, the rest of Israel, were blinded and now resist Jesus with everything they've got. Which should surprise no one, Paul continues, because God said hundreds of years earlier that's exactly what would happen. Just as it is written, verse 8, God prophesied this. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened, verse 10, so that they do not see and bow down their back always. God always preserves a remnant, Paul's been saying. In the days of Noah, God preserved Noah's family. In the days of Abraham, God preserved Lot and his daughters. And then in the days of Elijah, there were 7,000 prophets who didn't bow the knee. But today, Paul says, today God's doing it again. Today God is preserving a remnant. I should know I'm a part of it. There's a part of Israel that today is being saved by grace through faith. There's a part of Israel that recognizes Jesus and acknowledges Jesus and calls on the name of Jesus. But we're the exception, Paul's admitting. For most of Israel, the consequence of not seeing Jesus when he was standing in their midst is not getting to see Jesus today. The judgment for rejecting his words when he was speaking to them live and in person, when he came to call his people to himself, the judgment for that is to not be able to hear his voice today. Today, Paul says. That's the way it is today, right now. But not forever. I say then, he asks, verse 11, have they stumbled that they should fall forever? And it's a rhetorical question. He immediately answers that. He says, certainly not. No, that's not the way it works. This is not a permanent condition. This is not an irreversible judgment. But for right now, yeah, for right now, it is what it is. For right now, most of Israel, most of the time, cannot hear, cannot see, cannot understand Jesus. And you know what Paul says, verse 11? That's not completely a bad thing. It's a bad thing for Israel, but God is doing what God does. He's redeeming it. God has a plan, and the plan is underway, Paul is saying. He's taking what Israel did, he's taking something tragic, and he's using it for something glorious. Through their fall, Paul says, still verse 11, through Israel's fall, to provoke them to jealousy, to provoke Israel to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's some Huckleberry weird sentence structure. But we get what Paul is saying, right? Because he said it before, when Israel fell, God put them on the shelf. Israel rejected her Messiah, stood on their works, God sent them to the penalty box. Today, only a tiny percentage of Jews are being saved, but that's not where the story ends, Paul's reminding us. The blessing Israel rejected didn't didn't disappear with them. The blessing that Israel rejected, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has gone out into the world. 
It's gone out to the nations. It's gone to the Gentiles. It's come to us. And God is using us and will use us to make Israel jealous, to show Israel what they missed out on so that one day they'll come back. He's using us to make Israel jealous. He's using us to call Israel back to himself. And that, Paul says, that's good. That's God doing what God does. That's God taking a bad thing and redeeming it. Ray Pritchard, pastor that, that I'm tremendously fond of, um, he's with the Lord now, but his writing is still with us, compared it to a giant factory whose boss decided to reward his workers with a huge and incredibly generous contract. Bonuses and incentives and raises and healthcare and dental and vision and vacation. And it was so good when he handed the contract to the workers, they didn't believe it. They thought he was making fun of them. They said, we're going to go on on strike until you take us seriously. This is a joke. You're you're mocking us. We're going on on strike until you give us a contract that that respects us. And the boss couldn't convince him that he meant it. But he needed to keep the factory running, so he hired replacement workers and gave them the exact same benefits he was willing to give the original staff with the hope that when the original staff saw that he was serious, when the original staff saw his generosity materialize, when, when the original staff saw, no, the contract was legit and the benefits were real, they would decide to come back to work for him again. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but it's pretty good. And it gives us a sense of where Paul is going in verse 12. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now follow him on this. He's saying Israel's fall brought the gospel to the world, to us, which is good for us. Gentiles coming to Christ in time will be good for Israel. And just to complete the circle, during the kingdom, after Jesus returns, Israel, believing Israel, redeemed Israel, will be used to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. We talked about it literally on Wednesday, those of you who are here. You remember Isaiah 55? Surely you'll call it a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know shall run to you. This is in in the kingdom. This is after Jesus returns. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Is God done with Israel? Absolutely not, Paul says. When Israel repents, God's going to forgive Israel, restore Israel, and use Israel to glorify himself. If you want to get into that more, check out, we've been talking about this every Wednesday as we've gone through Isaiah. You You can get it on the website, you can get it in the podcast. Start around chapter 55, because if this is new, it'll blow your mind. But now, verse 13, Now Paul shifts his attention to the Gentiles. He's been talking to the church in Rome, which has both believing Jews and Gentiles, but now he's got us in his sights. He says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, verse 13. So I get to talk to you. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, so you need to listen to me. God's called me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I magnify my ministry, he says at the end of verse 13. He's... He's maybe being a little defensive. 
I'm magnifying my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul's repeating what he said earlier. I think maybe he's, he's just wanting to underline the fact he's not betraying Israel. He's not abandoning his people. He's saying, look, God's plan is to take the gospel to the Gentiles so the Gentiles can bring it back to Israel. So if that's God's plan, and if I have a heart for my people, for the Jews, the best thing that I can do is cooperate with God's plan. If I love the Jewish people, then what I need to do is, is do what God wants to do, bring the gospel to the Gentiles so they can bring it back to us. That's how, verse 15, that's how he will bring Israel essentially back from the dead. Now this is mind-blowing stuff, and Paul knows some of his readers in Rome are going to be slow to get on the train. So he says, all right, illustration time. He's going to try to bring us around that way. Verse 16, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. That's weird, Paul. <clears throat> but the reference, his readers would understand, and if they didn't understand, the Jewish believer next to them would understand. This is one of the Jewish offerings. This is one of the Levitical offerings. We read about it in Numbers 15. And the idea is you, you offer the first piece of dough in a batch to the Lord. The first fruit of a batch belonged to the Lord. And if that was done then by extension, the rest of the batch would be separated unto the Lord, holy unto the Lord. It's, it's, it's the idea a little leaven leavens the whole lump, except in reverse. What does that have to do with anything, Paul? Abraham was the first fruit of Israel. This is where he's going. Abraham was the first to be called by God, set apart by God, blessed by God. Abraham was the first fruit of Israel. So in the same way, as the lump sacrifices, as the heave offering sanctifies the whole lump, through Abraham, all of the descendants, the whole rest of the lump, are also set apart for God, sanctified unto God. Now, if that makes sense, Paul's on a roll now. Do, roll, he didn't get enough sleep last night, that's all right. If that makes sense, he says, okay, now go with me on this, still verse 16, if the root is holy, the branches are holy. He's making the same point, he's just changing his metaphor. He's saying Abraham, it's still Abraham, was the root of Israel. Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham is how the whole story started. Abraham was set apart unto God. And so if Abraham is set apart, if Abraham is holy, so too are his descendants. And Paul is saying that to say this. He's making that point to set up this point. If some of the branches were broken off, verse 17, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, pause, let's make sure we all understand, Paul's saying some of the branches of the tree that grew up from Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham have been broken off. Some of Abraham's biological descendants have been disconnected from the tree. They've been unplugged from God's blessing. Not all of them, but most of them. Not all of them, Paul said in verse 2. They're still me, they're still a remnant. But yeah, most of them are gone. And as those natural branches... As, 
Abraham's Jewish descendants were broken off, disconnected from that tree of blessing, a lot of wild branches, that's you and me, that's the Gentiles, have been grafted in where they used to be and are now enjoying the blessings that used to be theirs. We're now partakers of the blessings that flow from God's covenant with Abraham. It's so important that we go slow and get this right. Because if we don't, you're going to end up with all kinds of crazy ideas and false teaching and heretical nonsense. Absolutely critical to understand the olive tree, verse 17, the olive tree is not Israel. It's a popular misconception. Unfortunately, it's wrong. And if we get that wrong, we get everything that follows from it wrong. The air just propagates. The olive tree is in Israel. If you're not convinced, look down at verse 24 where Israel is grafted back in. Grammatically, it doesn't work. How is Israel going to be grafted back into Israel? The olive tree is in Israel. The olive tree is the place of privilege, the place of blessing, the place of opportunity that Israel enjoyed starting with Abraham. The root of the tree is God's covenant with Abraham. Abraham, the father of Israel. Abraham, the, the, the source of blessing to all nations. And the first branches of that tree, obviously, historically, were Israel. But most of those branches in Paul's day and our day have been broken off. Israel rejected her Messiah, handed him over to Rome to be crucified, forfeited those blessings. So they've been removed. And in their place, God has grafted in Gentiles, grafted in you and me, grafted in wild branches, branches that weren't cultivated. We were just out growing in the woods somewhere. But now we've been plugged in. We've been inserted into that covenant. And now we're enjoying the privilege and the blessing and the relationship that once belonged to Israel, which is awesome, which is amazing. But Paul wants us to understand it needs to come with a warning. Verse 18, now that you're in Israel's place, at least temporarily, do not repeat Israel's mistake. This is what he's been building up to. Do not boast against the branches, verse 18. And if you've got to boast, at least remember that you don't support the root, the root supports you. We've been grafted in. We're now standing in the place of privilege and blessing and opportunity that used to be Israel's, and that's great. Don't get smug, Paul is saying. Don't get aloof and condescending to anybody, especially not to Israel. Because you're not holding the root up. The branches of the trees do not hold the root in place. The root establishes the branches. Our story starts with Abraham. It doesn't matter if we're Jew or Gentile. The story starts with Abraham. God called Abraham out of his father's house in the Earl of the Chaldees. He said, I got plans. I'm going to bless your line. Jesus came from the line of Abraham. If it wasn't for God's covenant with Abraham, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. And yeah, Paul says, the natural, biological descendants of Abraham blew it big time. They forfeited their position. That doesn't mean we're better than they are. Analogy. Israel didn't get to the restaurant within 20 minutes of their reservation. God gave their table to someone else. Israel didn't show up. They weren't ready at the appointed time. God gave their table to the next party that showed up. That doesn't mean we're more deserving of the table than they were. 
You're going to be tempted, Paul says, verse 19, to say that the branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in. You're going to be tempted to think God realized he made a mistake, that the Jews were never up to the task, and that he should have gone with the Gentiles to begin with, but now he's fixing that mistake because we were better all along. That's not true, Paul says. God didn't cancel their reservation to make room for you. He didn't get a phone call saying, oh, well, they're a VIP. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scratch out the, the, the Jewish people so I can take care of the Gentiles. They're really important. They're deserving. No, Israel didn't show up for the reservation, so there was room for us. Because of their unbelief, they were broken off, verse 20. That made it possible for us to be grafted in. Not because we're better, but because they refused to believe, and we, verse 20, stand by faith. That's no credit to us. The root of the tree is Abraham. Why did Abraham get to be the root? We don't have to guess. Paul told us, he reminded us in Romans 4, 3, Abraham, what? Believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God, so he got to be at the root of God's plan to bring redemption to humanity. Israel checked out. Israel stopped believing God. So they don't get to be a part of that plan for a while. We do, because we've started to believe God. We've started to trust God. We've started to receive grace. We've started to find forgiveness in Christ Jesus. We get to be grafted in, but only because of grace. Paul is telling us at the end of this text, we're only where we are because of grace. We didn't do anything. Israel stopped believing, we started believing, and that's the only difference between us. So don't brag, Paul says, it's not about you. You didn't do anything. God did everything. He made us. He called us. He revealed himself to us. Oh, oh, yeah, I've sent his son to die for us. All we needed to do was believe and receive. All we needed to do was believe in God's grace and receive it by faith. Don't lose that, Paul is saying this morning. Don't repeat the mistakes of Israel. Don't make it about you. Don't decide there's only two kinds of people, the one God loves and the Jews. Because that's what Israel did in reverse, and look where it got them. Don't be haughty, but fear, verse 20. For if God did not spare the natural branches, verse 21, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, Paul's got more to say about Israel. He's going to go on to talk more about the future of Israel, how they will be grafted back in, verse 24, how they will be saved, verse 26. And we're going to come back to this next week. But for today, let's just, let's just hit pause and post up where we are. And, and if you've checked out over the last 10 or 15 minutes, this would be a good time to check back in. I, I, I get it. It can be tough slogging going through this, this deep theology Paul is laying on us. I get it. But he just came to something that's intensely practical. This isn't theor theoretical or theological. It's practical. Paul's an apostle to the, to the Gentiles. He's the apostle sent to you and me, and he just made a point that we don't want to miss. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. He's talking to us. Consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you goodness. For now, 
if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, if you don't, you also will be cut off. And this is another place we got to make sure we understand what Paul is saying. He's not talking to the church. He's not talking to individual believers who are the church. And when he says cut off, he's not talking about salvation, because that would have all kinds of implications, right? If you don't continue pursuing holiness, you'll lose your salvation. No, 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 no. Not what he's saying. In context, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the position of blessing and privilege and opportunity for ministry, the position Israel forfeited. That's what we stand to lose. And and Paul is articulating a principle here, even though he's not talking to the church, I think there's a principle that's very important for the church. If we as a church, not the church, as a church, as a body of believers or a, a church movement, if we reach a place of thinking that we've arrived, thinking that we are where we are because of what we've done, If we get to a point where we start thinking there's two kinds of people in the world, people who are special like us and everyone else, a church that God loves like he clearly loves us and everyone else, a church that God uses like he uses us and then there's everyone else, Paul is saying, watch out. Because we didn't do anything. And we must not, must not make it about us. If we, do, if, we, if we make it about us, if we become the hero of our own faith story, watch out for lightning. Because God will correct that misconception. He'll cut that church off. Not salvation, privilege. He'll cast that church aside, not for eternity, but he'll cast them aside for the opportunities that exist in this life for ministry. And he'll find someone else to use. Someone who understands that they are where they are, not because they're awesome, but because they believe in the one who's awesome. Because of their faith in God's awesome grace. Not talking talking about the church as a whole. This is application, not interpretation. I'm extracting a principle from what Paul is saying. But it's a principle, listen, it's a principle that's remained consistent throughout all of church history. When a church or church movement reaches the point that Israel reached, that point of saying, we've done it, we've made it, we're arrived, we're awesome, we've cracked the code, we have the formula. We're God's chosen people, he has to use us. He can't not use us. Oh, when we reach that point, look out. Because church history is cluttered with stories of churches and church movements that fell into exactly that trap. The churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the churches planted through Paul's ministry. 50 years later, by the end of the first century, 50 years later, we're already in trouble. How do we know? Jesus said so. He wrote them letters. They're collected in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And he said, y'all are in trouble. Six out of the seven, at least. And they were all in different kinds of trouble, but they were all in trouble. And despite Jesus' warning, they kept declining and eventually disappeared. There are no churches there today. Churches in Asia Minor in the first and second century thought they had it all figured out. Paul planted us. Of course we're great. And God set them aside. 
Churches in North Africa were the heartbeat of the church in the 3rd and 4th century. Some of the most important minds ever came out of North Africa in the 3rd and 4th century. Tertullian, Origen, Augustine. Those churches faded away. You won't find any of them today. Catholic Church is too easy to pick on. Let's just keep going. Let's, let's, go, let's go straight to the Reformation. Let's fast forward to the mighty churches and the awesome cathedrals that rose up after the Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, England, Sweden, France, Switzerland. Buildings are still there. And they're, and they're, they're incredible and awesome edifices. And some of them even still have church services. Some of them are nightclubs, restaurants, private residences even. The thing they have in common, you won't hear the gospel in almost any of them. Most of them are museums dedicated to what used to be. Places that God used to move before, verse 22, before they were cut off. What happened? It's the same thing that's happened consistently throughout church history. As churches and church movements haven't heeded Paul's warning, consistently through church history, the Spirit of God has moved and brought revival and, and raised a people up for himself. Consistently through church history, God has begun a movement among people willing to seek him by faith, willing to be led of him by faith, willing to step on and follow him by faith clinging to God, their eyes riveted on God, obeying God in the big things and the small things and the wacky things. And sometimes in the midst of revival, it seems wacky, especially to the churches that came before. But the people who are in the middle of it don't care because they're just following God, which means that God can use them. And he does. He uses that, that group, that church, that tribe, that movement, whatever they call themselves, however they think of themselves, God uses them to save souls and heal hearts and change lives. And people give glory to God and God is glorified until it all stops. Until the people stop. Because over time, church history tells us over time, pride always asserts itself. And those people who are in the middle of what God is doing start to say, it's a good thing the root has us branches. People begin to look at themselves as special. They begin to think of themselves as the ones that God uniquely loves. They begin to speak of themselves as the ones that God extraordinarily uses. They say, just look around. There's two kinds of people. There's us and everybody else. And they begin to talk amongst themselves. How can we keep this going? We need to write down what we're doing. We need plans and procedures and protocols and process maps. We need to record the things and institutionalize the things that make us who we are so that we can keep doing it. And pretty soon, what began as a ministry of the Spirit is reduced to a work of flesh. It becomes just a way to differentiate us and them. Those who do ministry like us are the ones that God clearly loves and everybody else that maybe God loves a little bit but not as much as us. As soon as a church movement does that, church, church movement, as soon as we do that, we've written our own obituary. Because while we're busy institutionalizing and codifying and structuring, God's moving on. Unplugging us from our place of privilege and raising up another group, another church, another tribe who's willing to listen, who's willing to believe, who's willing to follow, who wants to be branches, who understands they're not roots. 
And that new group will get grafted into the place that we once occupied. And they'll be blessed and they'll be used. And through them, God will move and he'll seek and he'll save and glorify his name. And the last group, the group that's, that's recently unplugged, they'll, they'll keep preaching the gospel probably. They'll still draw crowds of people for a while at least. And they'll see people saved sometimes. But while all of that is going on, the people there are going to be sure of two things. It's not like it used to be. And that new church down the street is doing it all wrong. That's the history of the church. As long as there's been church, that's been the cycle. A movement raised up by God with members sold out for God is sustained by God as long as they sustain their faith in God. When their faith in God is replaced by faith in structures and systems, when God gets put in a box, when they try to replicate the work of the Spirit without depending on the Spirit, what began as a movement is reduced to a machine. And then over time, it just becomes a museum or a mausoleum full of dead people. people a place where people used to be born again. Now just going through the motions of dead religion. If worship happens at all, it's not worship of the true and living God. It's worship to the founders. It's worship to the books they wrote, the methods they used. It's worship of the good old days. And I get that that begs the question, what about Calvary? And rightly so. Church history tells us that the, the transition from movement to machine takes on average 50, 55 years. That was 1971. <laughs> the, the peak of the Jesus Revolution was 68 to 73. That's 50, 55 years ago. So we should be concerned. I think anyone paying attention is concerned. Is that where Calvary Chapel is headed? Is the Jesus Revolution a symptom of that? Are we trying to, to worship Chuck? Are we trying to recapture the spark of the movement? Are we... Are we through, through man's efforts trying to keep the flame alive. I, I honestly don't think that that's Pastor Greg's goal, but, but I get that that's the question. As, as we cross that 50-year watershed, we need to ask ourselves, are we trying to reassure ourselves we're still the ones God loves? Are we trying to convince ourselves there are two kinds of people in the world, Calvary Chapel and everybody else? Oh, I hope not. And I don't think that Greg is, but at the same time, Calvary's not a denomination. We're an alliance of independent churches, and most of us are really stinking independent. <laughs> so I think ultimately the answer to the question, will Calvary Chapel stay grafted in or be cut off, I think it's going to be decided on a church-by-church -church basis. There will be those who say, we have our distinctives. We have contemporary worship, verse-by-verse -verse teaching. We're not afraid of 45-minute messages. We believe in gifts of the Spirit. We take prophecy seriously. We're waiting for the rapture. Of course God uses us, because that's what he told us to do 50 years ago. Why wouldn't he use us? We do church right. We do the things that we're supposed to do. We do the things that worked 50 years ago. And as long as we keep doing those same things, God will use us the same way. He's got to. He has to. If that's our mantra... If that's where we're trusting, we're already on our way to being a museum that has doves hanging on the wall. And I think there's some Calvaries that'll go that way. I think there's Calvaries that have already gone that way. 
But I think that there are others that will keep their eyes on God, keep seeking after God, or, or, or maybe go back to seeking after God. They'll return to their first love. They'll seek God. They'll wait on God. Spend time with God, expecting to hear from God. Do the things that they do to stay in fellowship with God. Confess sin so that when God speaks, the, 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 the relational detritus isn't there interfering with the voice of God. And when they hear from God, they'll leap to obey God. Not concerned with whether it's, it's familiar or, or, or completely different. Not concerned whether it seems reasonable or prudent in the eyes of the world. Not concerned with whether any other church is doing it. Just delighted to be close enough to God to hear from him, to be used of him. And churches that do that, I don't care if they're Calvaries or not. Churches who want that and pursue that and, and make themselves available for that, make themselves available for him, will be used of God whether there's a dove hanging on the wall or not. Because that's the church that remembers we're not who we are because of anything we've done. We're who we are and where we are because of everything God has done. And we'll get to remain where we are. We'll get to remain in that place of privilege that place of blessing, that place of opportunity for ministry, if we have faith, faith that God's not done, if we put our faith in him and we make our, ourselves available to what he wants to do with us today, not, not clinging to yesterday, today, walking with God today, knowing and doing as well today. And ultimately, ultimately, look, it comes down to each of us. Because church is just a, a collection of believers that God has called out of the world and filled with his spirit and called together. Calvary Chapel is a, is a, is a family of God that he's called out of the world and filled with the spirit and called together. And over the last 40 years, church was planted in 82. Over the last 40 years, God has used this fellowship. People have been saved here, built up here, sent out from here. Churches have been planted, missionaries in, in foreign countries, missionaries in, in office buildings and warehouses and factories in Wichita. The gospel has gone out over the airwaves and the internet. Marriages have been started and strengthened and restored. You know. I don't need to tell you, you've been here. I mean, if you've been here any length of time, you've seen some of that. And you know, you know there's been good and bad and ugly. Because there's people involved. But all in all, it's been 40 decently productive years for the kingdom of God. What about the next 40? Will we continue being used of God? Will we continue letting him move in and through us, or are we just going to hunker down and wait for the rapture? Because God will cut us off and make room for a church that's putting faith in him. Not a church that put faith in him once upon a time. A church that is actively, presently putting faith in him. And, and I can't decide that for us. I can decide it for me. But whether Calvary Wichita stays in that place of blessing or ends up cut off depends on all of us. Every one of us needs to ask for ourselves, do I believe that God wants to use me? And, I'm, and I'm, am I willing to let him use me? Am I willing to step out in faith and obedience to what God is calling me to do today? Or, or is it enough that I'm Calvary and we're cool? Better than the Methodists with all their liberalism. Better than the Pentecostals with all that emotionalism. Better than the Presbyterians with their dead orthodoxy. Better than the Baptists with all of their lack of accountability. A, all of that could describe Calvary chapels. There are Calvaries that fall into every one of those categories. 
But you know, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm part of a church that's better. We're the church that God loves. Just need to keep doing what we're doing, doing what we've always done. Do what God had us do in the days of revival. If it worked then, it'll work today. Do we really want to settle for that? Are we really ready to hang out on a sign that says Calvary Museum? On this site in 1982, Jesus moved. Or are we willing to ask God, God, how do you want to use me today? Am I willing to ask him? Am I willing to have faith that he'll answer? Am I willing to wait on him, staying close to him, confessing sin so I can hear from him? And when I do, when he answers because he will, God draws near to those who draw near to him. When God answers, am I willing to step out of faith and follow him? Not to stay saved. That's not what we're talking about. Not to stay loved. God can't possibly love any of us more than he does right now. But to stay in a place of blessing, which is always a place of serving. Because there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who know Jesus and those who don't. And Paul warns those of us who do, don't do what Israel did. Don't take pride in your position. Don't take pride in your past. Don't take credit for your accomplishments. Don't make it about you. Keep it about him so that he can use you to tell others about him. Don't exalt yourself, Paul says this morning. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves and seek him and hear from him and let him tell you how to tell other people about our great church. No, how to be part of a church that's telling people about our great God. Father, we stand before you. We are prideful men and women. We like to be the heroes of our own stories. We like the spotlight to be on us. We are not the root. We are the branches. Father, help us maintain a sense of place. Holy Spirit, draw our eyes to you. Draw our eyes back to you. Again and again, bring us back to you. Open our ears, open our hearts that we might hear from you. Tear down the walls, the things that we've erected in our, in our minds that exalt themselves against the knowledge of you, that we might hear, and as we hear, Lord, we pray for the faith, the boldness to obey, to follow, to be used of you, to glorify your name. Speak to us, Lord.